one of the essential truths of the Christian faith is that the God who made the whole universe has made himself known. He has not remained hidden. Nor has he left it up to us to find him. He's not playing hide and seek, trying really hard to keep himself from being seen by us. And somehow our finding him is up to us. It is not so. Rather, we believe that God, by his grace, has made himself known. He has disclosed himself to us. He has done so in the world around us. Has he not? As we look around, we see his handiwork. He has made himself known to us in the incarnation as Jesus Christ came and made the Father known to us. And God has also made himself known to us by giving us his written word, the Bible. It is not something we should take for granted. God could have created a world in which he would do just what we said, where he hides himself and he allows us to live in futility. Or to know certain things but not know him. But rather the God who's made everything wants us to know him and has made a way for us to know him by giving us his word. And since it is so, because it is so, it is most profitable to us that we continually read, reflect upon, and study God's word. Why? So that we may know more about him. It is with this ultimate goal in mind that we are going to be turning our attention this morning to one of the truths that God has revealed to us about himself, namely, his holiness. And it is my prayer that the Spirit of God, yes, that the Spirit of God would be greatly active this morning, making the word about God's holiness clear to us as it speaks of the nature of holiness and its importance for our lives. Furthermore, as we see the truth of God's holiness in the pages of Scripture, I also pray that the Spirit of God would move our hearts, our wills, our minds, and our whole being to respond rightly to the truth that are presented to us. God does not reveal himself just to satisfy our curiosity. There is a right response that is expected of us, and the response is really not a mystery, it is spelled out in scripture. So we will see, I believe clearly, not only what it is that God is holy, but how he wants us to respond to the truth of his holiness. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the sixth chapter of Isaiah. We want to open God's word. We're not going to go outside and say, let's look outside and see what God is like. Rather, we want to open his word. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. My focus will be the first seven verses of Isaiah. However, I believe it is useful for us to look at the entire chapter at this time. So while I will be focusing on the first seven verses, I want to begin our time by reading for you the whole chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. In 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant. And houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a turbanth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled. The holy seed is its stop. Amen. The vision that is recorded here for us, the vision of God's holiness, was given to Isaiah at a very critical moment in the history of God's people. We read in verse 1 that He received this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Maybe you're wondering, why in the world is this significant? Who is this King Uzziah? Why mention Uzziah here? Well, King Uzziah was one of the most successful kings of Judah. The Bible records that he came to the throne at age 16. And he reigned for 52 years over Judah. So he was significant for no other reason for the duration of his reign. He reigned for a very, very long time. Imagine how long 52 years is for us. You know how many presidents we've had during the last 52 years? It's a very long time. So he became king at 16 and he reigned for a very long time, for 52 years. But there is more. In addition for reigning for a very long time, the Bible tells us that 
God blessed the nation under Hosea, that Judah prospered economically and was very strong militarily. And in addition to that, Uzziah, unlike some of the kings who've come before him, he was concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people and did much in terms of spiritual reform. The Bible tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father, Uzziah, had done. In 2 Chronicles 26, it tells us even more that he set himself, Uzziah, he set himself to seek God. And he was instructed in the fear of God by Zechariah. His fame spread far, we read in 2 Chronicles 26 verse 15. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped by God for sure. Till he was strong. So God blessed Uzziah. God blessed the nation during his reign. Unfortunately, Uzziah's life and reign had a very, very, very sad ending to it. The Bible tells us that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That was not his job. God had set apart the priests to do this. But Uzziah, obviously, he was great. He was successful. He was powerful. There should be no limit to what I can do. That's what pride causes us to do. The Bible tells us that God was not indifferent to what Uzziah did. And God judged him. The Bible says very clearly that the Lord struck Uzziah. It wasn't a heart attack. The Bible tells us that the Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy. In the presence of the priests, in the house Of the Lord. By the altar of incense. Here is this king who was exalted. Now God in judgment put him down. Leprosy. The Bible says that he was a leper. Not just for a little while. But to the day of his death. And being a leper. He lived in a separate house. For he was excluded from the house of the Lord. A very sad ending for a man who had walked faithfully with God most of his life and who had led the nation well. As you can imagine, this was a time of great insecurity for the nation where you've known that king for 52 years and he had served God, the country had prospered. Certainly, people would have reason to say, What's next? How are things going to be for us? How strong will we be militarily? How strong will we be economically? Will the hand of God be upon us? Will he continue to bless us? The king had fallen. And the people of God were facing a very uncertain future. Without a powerful human king, the threat of foreign invasion appeared more and more likely. As you know, they had many enemies. And obviously, the fact that Uzziah was gone, that was a perfect opportunity for the enemies of God's people to go and conspire and invade the land. It was at this time of national crisis that Isaiah received the vision that we have before us. And our task this morning is to focus on the first part of the vision, verse 1 through verse 7, and consider together what it has to teach us about the holiness of God. And I will look at this text under three headings. First... 
A glorious reality to behold. Verse 1 through 4. A glorious reality to behold. Then we look at a grave problem to consider. Verse 5. A grave problem to consider. And lastly, a gracious and merciful solution to embrace. Verse 6 and 7. What is this glorious reality that we see here in verse 1 through 4? The Bible tells us that this vision was given of Isaiah. And it says very clearly in verse 1 what Isaiah saw. What is it that was prominent before him? The text says that Isaiah saw the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. And the word that is translated Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. Which means the sovereign one. It is the most exalted title that is used of God in scripture. That God is the sovereign one. So Isaiah, after the king had died, he sees the king of kings. The one who is in control, he sees Adonai, the sovereign one. And what is Adonai doing in this vision? The Bible says that he's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. That's his position. He is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He's sitting upon a throne because he is the king. And what is he doing while he's sitting there? Taking a little nap? No. Being passive? Certainly not. He is on the throne ruling over his people, ruling over Judah. And if you look at the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's not just Judah. He is ruling over the nations. So Isaiah sees Adonai, the sovereign one. Not a human king, not Uzziah, but he sees the king of kings himself. And he's sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the text not only tells us of his position, it also tells us of his attire. What does it say? It says at the end of verse 1, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah, I'm sure, had seen kings before with long robe. Long robes is what you would expect to see on a king. However, there is something different about this one. It is not a little bit long. It is not twice longer than what he has seen before. The Bible says that the train of his robe is so long that it fills the entire temple. This is no ordinary scene that is set forth before Isaiah The king who is on that throne is unlike any other king he has ever seen. The Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple. What a scene. Imagine. It's like for Isaiah upon seeing this. Edward Young, in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, writes this. He says, it is a scene of glorious majesty. As the vision is seen by Isaiah, he is silent. And his silence simply focuses upon the unspeakable exaltation of the Lord. Isaiah is to be called to a ministry in which the sovereign power of God will be displayed And in which judgment is to be prominent. In preparation for such a ministry, there must be. There has to be. There must be a vision of God's holiness. 
Indeed, the entire scene befits the solemnity of the message. Our attention is directed immediately to the Lord as him who alone is sovereign, who can both create and destroy, and in whose hands are the times of all men and nations. Isaiah sees the Lord on the throne. He sees the Lord's attire, but he also sees his servants. The Bible says in verse 2, That above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Who are the seraphim? This is the only reference that we have in the Old Testament of the seraphim. And from what we can see in this text. We can conclude that there are angelic beings who serve in the presence of God continually. They sing the praises of God. And do. His bidding, they carry out everything that God tells them to do. The text describes them to us. It says that they each had six wings. And I don't believe it, it is an unnecessary detail. God is not giving us unnecessary details here. Look at what it says. Not just two wings, but the wings are four. With two, he covered his face. They are in the presence of God, beholding the glory of God. Without sin, the Bible doesn't tell us they are sinners. Yet, in spite of that, they're still beholding the glory of God in a way that is reverent. And so, they cover their face before the Holy God. They still needed to shield themselves from the brightness of the glory of God, even though they were not sinful. They were in awe of God. They understood that God was other. So they were in awe of Him. With two wings, He covered His feet covering of the feet is most likely to indicate their positions as creatures under the authority of God. Again, not because you're sinful, but they are creatures. And there's only one creator. And they need to cover their feet as an expression of their humble position in the presence of God. We are not called to be humble because we are sinners. We are called to be humble because there is one God. And everything must bow before Him. Everyone must bow before Him. Seraphims also had two wings to fly. The text tells us. They were servants before God, ready to do whatever God tells them to do. And we will see them responding and doing later on what God tells them to do. And as important as it is, as instructive as it is, to see the description of the seraphim and how they were made to bring glory to God, to serve God by the... uh, just their own physical anatomy, the most important thing is not what they look like, is what they were doing. And what were they doing? Verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of His glory. The text does not tell us how many seraphim were there. We don't know that. But the picture seems to indicate there were, again, we cannot be dogmatic on that, but the picture seems to indicate that there were seraphims on both sides of the throne. Some commentators believe perhaps there were two rows, so picture that. We don't know for sure. And it also seems that, as it says that they were calling to one another, the idea is that the chanting, the singing, was antiphonal. One group 
calling to the other group. Holy, holy. So Lord of hosts. Whole earth is full of his glory. And we know from the vision, obviously, they spoke using human language. Because there was a point to their singing. They wanted to communicate in language that Isaiah needed to understand. And they sang continually the praise of God. Again, as you see from the text, it does not say, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But rather we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Is this accidental? Is it? Certainly not. You see, repetition was often used as a literary device to stress the significance of a particular message. The angels, God wanted to Isaiah to get this. You are standing before me and please, please know this. I am holy, holy, holy. He is, as again Ed Young refers, as a threefold holy one. This declaration of the importance of God's holiness, I believe, and many others believe as well, that influenced Isaiah so much that he, in the rest of the book, often refers to God as what? The holy one of Israel. Twenty-six times. In the rest of the book, he refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. Not that God is not, God's love is not important. God is not, God's mercy is not important. God's power. I'd like to believe that there is a message that we ought to get from this. God is holy, holy, holy. And I believe Isaiah got it. He wanted to keep before the eyes of the people that the one with whom you are dealing, he is holy. He is the holy one of Israel. And what in the world is the word holy that I've been shouting here this morning means? What does it mean? The word that is used here is the word kadosh, which literally means to separate to cut off, to separate, to cut off. And it carries with it two elements, two aspects. First, when the Bible refers to God as holy, the primary idea is that God is, listen to this, separate from and far above his creation. He is separate from and far above His creation. Do you know anyone like this? God exists independently of his creation. He stands above his creation. He's not the product of our imagination. God is. And he's the only one of whom we can say that. God is. He exists independently of us. Creation depends upon God. But God does not depend upon anything or anyone. So God's holiness then refers to His uniqueness. His aloneness. There is no one like Him. We sing that, don't we? We read that in scripture. He, there is none like Him. He's alone. He is the other. He's unique. He transcends everything. He is infinitely great. We can speak of great men, can't we? But there is no one like our God. We can speak of great kings, mighty kings, mighty rulers. Oh, read the rest of the book of Isaiah and you'll see what the Bible says, what God says of them. 
He alone is great. God is holy. And everything about God is holy. God's love is unlike any other love. So His love is holy. His power is holy. His wisdom is holy. There is none like Him. That is the point that we need to get. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like Him, says the Holy One. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. They had kings before. But God is saying, I am your king. All these have stood before you, but I am your king. And so he says to us as well today, I am your king, Barak. I am your king. For says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The book of Hosea 11.9 says, I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. We cannot compare him to anything in, the crea- in creation. In addition to pointing to God's separateness and transcendence, the word holy is also applied to God in, in an ethical way. God is not just separate from his creation. He is also totally separate from anything that is sinful. From anything that is impure. There is no impurity in God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In James 1.13, unlike us, the Bible says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Job 34.12 says, It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Our God is not only separate from his creation. He's not only above and beyond his creation. He's also separate from evil. God is pure. There is no trace of evil in him. There is no darkness, the Bible tells us, in God. He is light. No darkness at all in him. And it is this aspect of God's holiness that we sang earlier when we sang... The hymn, holy, holy. What did we say? Only, see that? Only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. The seraphim, in addition to proclaiming that God is holy, holy, continue their song. As they declare that the whole earth is full of his glory. He is holy and the whole earth is full of his glory. That is, in all of the earth, in all of creation, we see the greatness of God. The heavens indeed declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God's perfections are displayed boldly in all of creation. So that we are without excuse, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1. When we fail to respond to them and bow before him and worship him as God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, brothers and sisters. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the Bible doesn't tell us for how long the seraphim sang 
that song. But it does tell us of what happened as a result of the song. Verse 4 says this, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That the praising of God's holiness caused the foundations of the house itself, the temple, to shake. That's what Isaiah saw in the vision. And the very word that is used for shaking, later Isaiah will use it to refer to the heart of the people shaking because they were afraid of enemies that were coming. The Bible says of the people that they shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The foundations of the temple shook as God's holiness was being praised. And we also told that the house was filled with smoke. Filled with smoke. Again, you're familiar with the Bible, you'll understand that smoke is a very clear indication of the presence of God. Of the presence of God. Earlier in Isaiah 4, 5, we read this, And the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over, far over all the, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Now as Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God, listening to the song of the seraphim, what do you think is, is on his mind? What is he thinking? Think he's saying, Wow, isn't this cool? Think that's what he's saying. Wow, isn't this cool? Look at this. I can't wait to go home to tell people about it. I can't wait to post it on Facebook. Jerusalem Facebook. Bible tells us none of that was on his mind. The vision of God's holiness was not just a glorious reality to behold, but it was also a reality that caused a very, very serious problem for Isaiah, what I'm referring to as a very grave problem thought long and hard before using the word grave. And I was not just trying to use another G word. That's the first word that came to mind. I think part of it was in, when I was growing up in Creole, we would use that word a lot. And when you want to say someone is in deep trouble, you would say your situation is very grave. I mean, the very word itself, grave. You are in trouble. So as I was reading this, that's what I thought of. His situation had much gravity. It, it, gravitas, gravitas. It was heavy. It was not light. It was a very serious situation. Isaiah was in deep trouble. Verse 5 says it very well. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am lost. As the old King James put it, Woe is me, for I am undone. Woe is me, for I am undone. Prophets were expected to pronounce God's oracles before God's people. And at times they had good news and at times they had bad news. And when they had bad news to share, message of doom and calamity, they would begin it with this term, woe. There's something interesting here. And what we see here is that Isaiah is not looking at the people of Judah and saying, woe to you people. 
In the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah looked at himself and he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am undone. Jesus used this for this formula. Speaking to the religious leaders of his day, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you have, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was not good news that Jesus was sharing with the Pharisees. So Isaiah applies this to himself as he stands in the presence of God. This man who before thought he had it all together. Perhaps compared to other people, Isaiah was a pretty good guy. Perhaps people had used, oh, that's a holy man. And, but in the presence of God, he couldn't hold it together. And no one can hold it together. In the presence of a holy God. And he tells us a little bit more about why he felt this way. He says, for I am, why is it bad news? Why am I undone? For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus says, from the heart, evil comes. And I believe it's a way for Isaiah to say, I am a rotten, sinful man. And I live in the company of others who are just like me, rotten and sinful. And now I find myself in the presence of the one who is holy. How in the world can I stand? How in the world can I stand? And I saw him. And I see him. I'm done. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24. But Isaiah knows that his hands are not clean. To be lifted toward God. His heart is not pure. His lips are not clean to sing the praises of God. In himself, therefore, all he can expect is condemnation. Doom. Calamity. From the holy God before whom he stands. The God that is seeing. And so it is for us. So it is for you in your sins, in our sins. We are in deep trouble before a holy God. You may feel good when you are with your friends. Oh, I don't drink, I don't do this, I don't do that. I'm well respected at work. But you see, the standard is not your friend. The standard is God himself. Perfect purity. And before him, in our sins, in our sins, we are in deep trouble. Your biggest problem, and I want to say this, my friends, your biggest problem, I don't know how you came here this morning, but I want to say this, I don't mean to be insensitive. Some of you may be going through some very, very, very difficult time. But I want you to know that your biggest problem, 
The most important question that must preoccupy you is not whether you are healthy. And if you are single, it is not. And I remember those days, oh, when am I going to get married? Oh, if you're unemployed, oh, when am I going to get this job? Oh, you're close to retirement. What is the future going to be like? As important as all of those things are, there is nothing more important for you to be thinking about than this. How can I, as a sinful man, stand before a holy God? A holy God whose holiness demands justice. God doesn't just say, I'm holy and it's okay for you not to be. This is a question that tormented Martin Luther. He was aware of God's holiness and his own sinfulness and unworthiness before God. It is recorded that after his ordination, as he stood by the altar, getting ready to say the words, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. The unexpected happened to Luther. He froze. And went back to his seat, totally humiliated in the presence of those who had gathered for this great occasion. What had happened to him? Luther offered the following explanation. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. In our sins, there is no hope for us in the presence of a holy God. In our sins, the only rational response is to shake in terror. It is to tremble. It is to say like Isaiah, woe is me. And if you do not know Christ this morning, and the Spirit of God is working, showing you that God, in fact, who is the God of this world, is holy. My prayer is that you would understand the danger that is facing you even now. This is my most sincere prayer for you. Now what happens next? As Isaiah is facing this grave situation, what happens does God let him like this? Does God say, yeah, Isaiah, you are absolutely right, Isaiah. You are detestable indeed in my sight. I am holy and you are not. This is what happens. Does God tell the seraphs to go and banish Isaiah? Take him away from my presence? That's what should really have happened, you see. But praise God. The holy God, in whose presence Isaiah stood, is also a God of infinite mercy and grace. So this morning, after we've looked at our grave problem, my final point, praise be to God, is not banishment. For sinners. That's what it should be. God is holy. We are sinful. Banishment. That should be next. But praise be to God. There is a gracious solution to embrace this morning. There is a gracious solution to embrace. The Bible tells us that in verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me. Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. The text does not tell us whether or not the Lord had given a specific direct instruction to the seraphim. Doesn't matter. It's unimportant. All we know is that they seraphim went. And obviously because they were servants of God. The seraphim only went, I'm sure, because that's what God wanted him to do. So the seraphim flew to Isaiah with a hot burning cold and touched his lips. But it's great that the Bible doesn't just end it here. For us to speculate, what in the world does this mean, right? God not only acted here, but he's telling us what it means. Perhaps many would say, oh, wow, well, it is a fire, you know, that it had that thing about it. As it touches your lips, it does something to your heart, it changes your character and all of that. The angel says, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. The call came from the altar. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, a definite, definite indication. That what God was doing was saying, Isaiah, you are sinful before me. But I have made a way. I have provided for your atonement. I have provided for your forgiveness. I have made a way for your guilt to be taken away. Sacrifice was made. That you would be forgiven. That your guilt would be taken away. It is not the call in itself, Calvin says, that, that accomplished that change that Isaiah needed. Calvin says this. There is no reason to believe that the coal possessed any virtue. As superstitious persons imagine that in the magical arts there is some hidden power. This is not magic. This is God working. Providing for the forgiveness of his servant. Why? Because of his sheer love and mercy. Rather than banishing Isaiah from his holy presence because of his sins, God cleanses him, takes away his sin, and then makes it possible for him to immediately, as you see in the rest of the chapter, answer God's call to bring his message to his people. I mean, this is grace, brothers and sisters. Not only God did not condemn him, but God says, now you're going to come and I'm going to use you. This God who doesn't need anyone. This God who can do all things, I'm going to use you, Isaiah. You're going to be my servant. And I have qualified you by providing atonement. Not only you can you stand and not be banished, but you can be my servant. To accomplish my purposes in the life of, my, of the nation. Actually, to accomplish my purpose among the nations. And brothers and sisters, as you think of this, of what happened to Isaiah, is this not what God has also done for us in Christ? Is this not what he has done for us as sinners who stood helplessly in the presence of a holy God? You remember the song we sang? Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. The song does not say 
holy God in love became perfect men to help those who were almost there. Those who were okay and I, you know, a little, little sprinkle, a little grace here. They were not really that guilty. That's not what the song says. Those who found a way to pay for their own sin. Penance, whatever. But rather, the song says, on the cross, he took my sin. On the cross, he took my sin. The solution was, came from the altar, because that's where the sacrifice was made. And so for us, the solution is where? At the cross. Where our Savior died. That's where atonement was made completely. All of our sins are gone. Have you ever found yourself where you wake up and say, Oh, oh, you mean this one, this sin too, Lord? Have you ever been there? God, I understand you forgive. You mean this sin too? This sin too? Again, Lord, you. You mean Jesus paid for this sin too? I would not forgive myself. Have you been there? But he provided atonement for every sin that we've ever committed. And God is the one who did it. In our sinfulness, there was no hope for us. Our righteousness before God was like filthy rags, the Bible tells us. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We understood, don't we, that we had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages for our sin was death. But this holy God, before whom Isaiah says, I'm undone, this holy God, whose condemnation we too deserve, because of his amazing love and mercy, did something for us. In the letter of Paul to Romans, it says that he put forward, I love this, not you? He put forward his perfect son, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood. He put him forward. Jesus did not die. The death of an innocent victim. Powerless victim rather. God the Father put him forward. We didn't grab him. We didn't go and pull Jesus. God the Father offered him up for us. He presented him. He put him forward. His perfect son, in whom there was no sin. As a propitiation by his blood. That is to satisfy the wrath of God with his own blood. The wrath that you and I deserve. Jesus paid it all indeed. It is finished. Nothing for us to add. His work is complete. He satisfied the Father's wrath for us. Yes, he bore my blame. And yours. Oh, and because of what he did, we too are forgiven. And because of what he did, oh, we can sing, Patrick. We can sing when we come on Sunday. We must sing. How can we be silent? How can we be silent in the presence of this God who is not just holy, but infinitely merciful and gracious? How can I be silent? Are you silent when the Redeemer is being praised? Are you silent? Do you find it hard to sing? I would encourage you to search your heart. I encourage you to search your heart to see, have you known this mercy, this grace, this love? Have you? And if you, and if you have not, 
And if you have not known this great love and mercy, you can know it today. You can call on his name today and then you'll understand why we sing. Sometimes people say, oh, why, what's the big deal? Why are you so fanatical? Why are you so excited? I'm like, are you kidding me? You're asking me why I, I want to sing the praises of the God who is holy, holy, who has loved me in Jesus Christ. What a terrible question is that? I have one for you. You want to know what the logical question is? Why in the world do we get so excited about lesser things? I mean, nobody asks, why in the world are you so excited like I am when the World Cup comes and the team kicks a ball? Big deal! Yet I am excited. We get excited over lesser things. Our hearts get filled with pleasure. Lesser things. You mean the That God has shown us mercy. Oh, it should fill our hearts with joy. And we should indeed want to sing. We can sing of our redemption. Oh, songs that angels cannot sing. We read nowhere where angels sin and get forgiven and get redeemed. We too are qualified like Isaiah to be God's servants in this world. How are we to respond this morning to all that we've seen and heard about God's holiness this morning? If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to continue to meditate and reflect on God's holiness. We cannot exhaust it today. We can say, oh, I've thought long and hard about it. Daily, continue to meditate on the truth of God's holiness, that God is other, that he is absolutely pure. And as you do so, then reflect on his mercy as well in grace. That you can stand in his presence, forgiven, accepted. And let us continually worship him with holy fear. Holy fear. The God, remember the seraphim had to cover their face. Let us not treat God because he loves us, because he's our father as though he is. He is just like one of us. Oh, he is not. Let us always, let us honor God by the way we worship him. Worship him with holy fear and humility. And yes, great joy too. (laughs) And commit yourself by his grace to reflect his holiness. Ask the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit to work in your heart through the word of God. That you would be like him. That's what we've been hearing from 1 Peter. I am holy, therefore be holy in all your conduct. We cannot be reflecting on the holiness of God at the same time. Not care about our own holiness. Our father hates sin. He hates evil. He loves that which is good. And as his children, we need to have that. We need to want to be the same way. Do you treasure sin? Is there any sin that, I, that you are treasuring this morning? Pray that God would work in your heart. That you would hate it. Not tolerate it. But hate it. That you would love that which is good. God wants to work in our hearts. To change us. And let's persevere. One day we will be Totally holy. Won't that be great? First John 4. It has not yet appeared what we will be. But when he appears, we shall be like him. Don't you long for that day? I do long for that day. When I will no longer be frustrated with my failures. Where there will be no sin. Oh, what a wonderful day this will be. And the Bible says, whoever has this hope then, let him purify himself. So, purity... Holiness must be something that we prioritize, that we give ourselves to. And let us also give ourselves fully to the service of God. Don't think you are disqualified. That's The enemy will lie to you. You can't serve God. You're not worthy. But in Jesus Christ, I've been made to serve. I'm qualified to serve. 
Why am I in the world would I come and stand here if it were not for the conviction that God in Christ has accepted me? Let us give ourselves fully, totally to the service of God. Let us also pray for a heart for those who are without Christ because the Bible is very clear that those who are apart from Christ will be banished from the presence of a holy God. This is urgent. We must tell those apart who don't know Christ that God is holy. And trust God to convict them of their sins so they would turn to Christ. Maybe you are here this morning. And you've been hearing about this holy God that we've been talking about. Has the Spirit of God been working in your heart? I pray that He would allow you to see that God is holy and you are not. And you cannot put that aside as no big deal. Maybe you've been in the church all of your life. Boy, girls, young men, elderly. But maybe this morning the Spirit of God has been working in your heart, helping you see your sin. Don't wait to say, oh, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to fix myself. Rather, look to Him. Confess your sins and run to him today. He'll hear you. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon him. May God, by the Spirit of God, help you see your grave situation. That you would be restless. And I really pray that if you don't hear without Christ, there would no be no peace, no false peace, but that you would be absolutely restless today, rest of the week, until you come to find rest in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your word that is true. Thank you, Father, for your word that declares clearly that you are holy and that we are sinful. But that your word also that proclaims very clearly that there is a solution. And it is not one that we provided, but it is one that you yourself provided. You provided the lamb, the one who takes away our sins. Oh, thank you so much. It is in the name of our dear Savior we pray. Amen.